Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Thank you for joining me for this episode. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my wonderful and lovely Patreon supporters. A big welcome to my newest supporter, Julie. And a big thank you to my upgraded patron, Aaron. If you would like to become a supporter of the show, simply visit my Patreon page and you can check out the different levels and different perks. I just put up the sixth bonus episode a couple of days ago, and I'm working hard at getting those out on a more regular basis. So I hope you guys have been enjoying those. Patrons will also receive other perks, such as goodies in the mail from me when you sign up and on various holidays, such as Halloween, Christmas, Valentine's Day, and whatever else comes around, or just whenever I feel like it. So I hope you guys check that out. Every dollar really does help, and you guys really motivate me to do better. It is very slowly becoming spring here, and I'm starting to feel a little bit more functional, so hopefully episodes will be coming out on a more regular basis. We're actually coming up to the two-year anniversary of when I started this podcast on May 1st, and I'd like to do a special listener episode to celebrate that, so I'd love to hear from you guys. You can either write it or you can record it, either your hometown case or a national case that you've really been interested in or even a case that has affected you personally. You can email those to me and if you just want to write it down I will happily read your story for you and give you credit however you'd like to be credited. I look forward to hearing those from you. I've already gotten a couple and they've been really interesting and you can send those to me at midnightsunmurder at gmail or you can send it to me in a message through the Facebook page. I'm gonna put the deadline at around April 15th or 20th, so you have a quite a bit of time to get those to me. And of course, if you have any questions, you can send me a message. I'd say for time-wise, uh, for recording, anywhere from like four to 10 minutes, and for writing, I'd say at least a couple of paragraphs, but I'm not gonna be super worried about the length. I just look forward to hearing those from you guys. And of course, fellow podcast hosts, you should definitely send your stories in. I would love them. I've had so many fantastic contributors to previous collaborative episodes, and and I hope some of you guys want to join in on this episode as well. Lastly, before I get into tonight's episode, I wanted to run a promo from another true crime podcast in a cold place, albeit that is extremely different from Alaska. 
Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and quiet. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. From legendary and infamous to the lesser known and forgotten Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. Find True Crime Finland wherever you get your podcasts. So I hope you guys check out her show. She's a real sweetheart and, as you can tell, has a fantastic voice for podcasts. I would love to share more promos at the top of my show, so if you'd like to do a promo swap, you can contact me on Facebook or through email. And now let's get into the episode. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, it's going to be something totally different. Um, no murder. No real death. No specific deaths, anyways, but I hope you stick around and give it a listen anyways. So tonight I'm going to be talking about a local festival called Fur Rondi and the history of the Iditarod. Fur Rondi just ended about a week ago and the Iditarod is happening right now, so it seemed like a good time to talk about both of them. So for hundreds of years, Europeans have been coming over to Alaska and making a lot of money off of natural resources such as animal fur and later gold mining. And I'm actually going to discuss the gold mining in depth in a future crime episode. But all you really need to know right now is that these are a few of the things that drew outsiders to relocate here. And in the late 1800s, quite a few people ended up in Alaska because of the gold rush. In fact, in just 10 years between 1890 and 1900, the population of the state nearly doubled. And while Alaska seems like a pretty sparsely populated state now, with a population density of around one person per square mile, at the turn of the 20th century, the population density was one person for every 10 square miles. This population was spread out in tiny communities throughout the state, and for a time the largest city was Nome, with a mere 12,000 people. By the 1930s, Anchorage still had only about 3,000 people. A local resident named Vern Johnson wanted to create an event that would bring the community together and also give people something fun to do in the wintertime. He and some friends created a three-day sporting event that would take place in Anchorage in mid-February. It was the same time frame in which miners and trappers would be bringing their wares into town and it seemed like a good time for the whole community to get together. That's why it was originally called Fur Rendezvous, and it's morphed over time into just being known as Fur Rondi. At the time, fur trading was one of the biggest industries up in Alaska, so it was very important. The first Fur Rendezvous took place February 1935, and it was a great success. There were a variety of outdoor sports, including skiing and hockey, as well as a short sled dog race downtown and culminating with a bonfire and torchlight parade, which was attended that year by nearly every single resident of Anchorage. Over the last 80 plus years, this event has evolved into a 10 day long event that still retains much of the original sentiment, but which also brings tens of thousands of visitors 
from all over the world to come check out the unique festival. In fact, just a couple of years ago, National Geographic selected Furirandi as the top winter festival in the world. Through the years, the festival has also evolved to celebrate more aspects of Alaska Native culture, including a blanket toss, which is where a bunch of people stand in a circle around a huge blanket made of seal skin and toss someone in the air upwards of 20 feet. This fun event was traditionally a method for hunters to get a better view of their surroundings. These days, the festival now includes over 100 events, and I'm just gonna tell you about a couple of the stranger ones. There are a few events which capture the spirit of old time Alaska, including a fur auction, the Miners and Trappers Ball, a beard competition called Mr. Furface, and the world champion dog sled races. And there have been modern additions such as the snow sculpture contest. There's a slow ride bike race where people compete to see who can complete the course the slowest without stopping, which that sounds like thrilling viewing. <laughs> There's the outhouse ski race, which is somehow exactly what it sounds like. Teams use porta potties or throw together something akin to an outhouse and put it on skis. It's not just a competition to see who is fastest because there are a variety of prizes similar to those in a costume contest. Lastly, I have to mention the running of the reindeer, which is a newer event that took place this past Saturday for the 12th year in a row. It's modeled after the famous running of the bulls, only with reindeer and wacky costumes on the people, not the reindeer. It was conceived by a pair of local radio DJs and over the last 12 years, has raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Toys for Tots charity. There are also more traditional festival activities such as a carnival, a parade, and fireworks. Another really exciting competition that draws a lot of spectators and competitors is the Iron Dog Race, which takes place every February. It's the world's longest snow machine race, or snowmobile, at over 2,000 miles from Big Lake to Nome to Fairbanks. The race follows partially along the route for the Iditarod Sled Dog Race. It's an event that has been going on for 35 years, and it's called the Iron Dog because Alaska Natives traditionally use dog sleds for transportation until the snow machine, AKA Iron Dog, came along. It can be a pretty dangerous event, but no one has ever died Two-man teams race together through harsh weather, rough terrain, and a lot of darkness. The winter's time is normally between 35 to 40 hours, which means they're going around 55 to 60 miles per hour the whole time, which I'm exhausted just thinking about it. However, the huge effort is very worth it since the prize is usually around $100,000 and there's a variety of other prizes that people can win. One of the most exciting and most watched events of Fur Rondi, and one of the very last events, is the ceremonial start to the I Did a Rod race. And I can't do this episode without talking about the last great race. The annual 1,000 mile long dog sled race is one of the things that Alaska is most known for. It's the longest dog sled race in the world, and every year in March, thousands of people come from all over to both cheer on the mushers and to compete.
The history of dog sledding is a long one. For thousands of years, natives in Alaska, Canada, and Greenland have been using dog sleds as a mode of transportation through the frozen wilderness. Around the turn of the 20th century, during the Gold Rush, miners would use dog sleds to transport themselves and supplies to wherever they were seeking gold. The main trail used during this time period was called the Iditarod Trail, named after a nearby town. The gold rush was pretty short-lived, and once planes began to be used in Alaska a few decades later, dog sledding became less and less used as a mode of transport, though people still raced them for sport. One dog sled run that you've probably heard of was in 1925, when over a dozen mushers and a hundred dogs relayed diphtheria antitoxin from Anchorage up to Nome. It took less than six days for the final musher and dog team to reach Nome and to help stop a diphtheria epidemic that had been happening up there. The musher, Gunnar Kaysen, and his lead dog, Balto, became famous throughout the United States. There's still a statue of Balto in Central Park in New York, and in 1995, there was an animated movie made about that event with Kevin Bacon as the obvious choice of Balto the dog. In the 1960s, when snow machines came around, they became the primary mode of transport in places throughout Alaska where there aren't any roads. The 100th anniversary of Alaska's purchase from Russia was coming up in 1967, and there was a committee planning all sorts of activities to celebrate it. A member of that committee named Dorothy Page came up with the idea of a dog sled race. And the initial one, which was in 1967, was only about 50 miles, but it turned out to be an incredibly popular event. A few years later, in 1973, they decided to kick it up a level and made the race follow along the original Iditarod Trail all the way up to Nome, from just north of Anchorage, a thousand full miles. The race gained momentum and slowly became incredibly popular, and dog sledding really took off in a big way as a sport. And the Iditarod quickly became the white whale for mushers from all over. The first winner took about 21 days to finish the race, but modern winners generally finish between eight and 10 days. So every year in early March, approximately 40 to 50 mushers gather with their dog teams, the size of which must be between 12 to 16 at the beginning of the race, and no less than six by the end. The ceremonial start is in downtown Anchorage, and it actually just happened last Saturday the 2nd. And the following day, there's an actual start about 75 miles north of Anchorage in Willow, where there's more space and better snow. I believe the ceremonial start is done just so the big crowds of people can see it and not have to go 75 miles away. Then the musher will spend the next week or two almost entirely alone with their dogs and the wilderness. 1,000 miles of snow, ice, mountains, rivers, wild animals, darkness, and freezing temperatures lay before them before they finally make it up the coast of the Bering Sea and reach their destination of Nome. It takes extreme mental fortitude and a lot of planning. The musher will spend months with their chosen team preparing for the race. 
they will run the dogs a few thousand miles over the course of training. The dogs are connected to the sled in pairs, and each position has its own strategic advantages, so they have to select the right dog for the right job and put them in the right spot. They have to figure out the best method of feeding and resting their dog team so that they don't get overworked or injured. They have to do the same with themselves. They have to keep themselves focused on the finish line and not get too bogged down by fear of failure. There are three mandatory stops, one that is 24 hours at any checkpoint along the way, and two other eight-hour stops. Beyond that, the musher is left to their own planning for when they run and when they rest. The musher has shipped food and gear to checkpoints ahead of time. Her team will go through a few thousand pounds of food during the course of the race. She has also had to bring many required safety items and plan ahead for anything that she or her team might need. The fastest winning time ever was in 2017, eight days, three hours, and 40 minutes, and was actually pulled off by the oldest winner ever, 57-year-old Mitch Seavey. That's an average of five miles per hour, and while the dogs are obviously doing more work, burning around 12,000 calories a day, it can still be very tiring to be the musher. You're standing on the back of a sled, you're using your muscles to steady yourself and to hold on. You're in below freezing weather for days at a time, and sometimes you have no visibility. The cool thing about dog sledding is that it's a sport that doesn't really discriminate by age or gender. A musher just needs to be mentally and physically tough and also intelligent and good at strategic planning. The youngest musher to win the race was Dallas C.V., the son of Mitch, in 2012 when he was 25. He's also the youngest to ever compete because his first race was the day after he turned 18. The oldest competitor was Colonel Norman Vaughn. He was a World War II vet and Antarctic explorer who didn't do his first Iditarod until he was in his 70s and he competed multiple times before racing for the last time at age 84. And then he still lived for another 16 years, so way to make the rest of us look lazy as hell. You don't even need to be Alaskan born and bred to win, as four-time winner Martin Boozer proves, who originally learned to mush in his home country of Switzerland. And last year, a Norwegian musher actually won. There have been a couple of father and son teams that have won at different years, including the Mackies, who are a father and two sons who all won in different years using bib number 13. Women have also proven that they've got what it takes to be great mushers as well, and they are often one-third to a half of the yearly competitors. The first woman to win was Libby Riddles in 1985, and Susan Butcher won four out of five times between 1986 to 1990. Dee Dee Genro never won, though she did play second once. And out of the 30 races that she completed in her career, she was in the top 10 16 times. These are the names that girls like me grew up knowing. These are the types of badass women that we idolized as kids. And of course, I can't talk about the Iditarod without mentioning Rick Swinson, who has won five times and placed in the top 10 20 times. 
but he was actually the loser in a classic Iditarod moment from 1978 when he lost by one second or by a nose. It's objectively kind of strange that these dog mushers are basically celebrities in Alaska, but people in other states or countries probably have never heard any of their names. My family actually had a dog sled and a couple of huskies when we were children, and we would mush them on a track, and it was a lot of fun, but I definitely cannot imagine doing it for a thousand miles. There's a good reason that this is considered one of the toughest and most intense competitions of any sport. The race is definitely growing in popularity year by year. Thousands of people come from all over the world to watch the events and hundreds of volunteers every year make the event happen. It's definitely kind of a strange sport if you really think about it, but it's quintessentially Alaskan, so I felt like I should discuss it. I hope you enjoyed this kind of unique episode. Hope it gave you a bit of insight into the strange lives that some Alaskans lead. I'm actually working on a really fascinating history episode right now, which will be out sometime, hopefully soon. I've actually got several history episodes that I'm going to do pretty close together. So I hope you guys are digging on those. Love to hear some feedback. Thank you for listening to this one, and I will see you next time.